are continuing along, along the chronological life of Jesus. And we are in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, reading from verse 40. John chapter 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, they were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred among the crowd, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but they had assumed that since he was coming from Galilee, that he had been born in the Galilee. He was not. So there was some confusion among the crowds, but the crowds were rightly saying, when the Messiah comes, he will originate from Bethlehem. Uh, That was known, that that was uh, written in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 45, Then the officers... The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Okay, so remember, we had read formerly that the religious leaders had sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. They go to arrest Jesus, they hear Jesus speaking, and they're like, we can't arrest this guy. I mean, listen to the way he speaks. They come back, they say, where is he? They say, we couldn't touch him. I mean, nobody has ever spoken this way. And they said, what, you believe in him? None of us believe in him, meaning the religious leaders. And so now, even the religious leaders are saying, the crowds are accursed. The crowds are accursed because they believe in him. Verse 50, then, this, then we read about Nicodemus again. We've read about Nicodemus before. Remember Nicodemus had come to him earlier and said, how can a man be born again when he is old? And so this Nicodemus is coming here and he says this to Jesus. Nicodemus, who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that, the, that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So this Nicodemus was really, he was one of the good guys among the Pharisees. He was on the Sanhedrin. And remember, it's going to be Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea that ultimately take Jesus down off the cross. Nicodemus lost everything. History has written about Nicodemus. He lost everything because of his devotion to Christ. But this was one of the Pharisees, and the scriptures tell us in John chapter 12, many even of the rulers believed on him, but they were not confessing him because of the fear of the Pharisees. So even, this is one of the rulers that actually believes on him, so he makes a meager attempt to defend Jesus. He says, our own law doesn't condemn a man until they hear the man speak, until they hear the man give a defense, and that is really ingrained within the Jewish community, even to this day that the Jews will always want to give a man a chance to at least defend himself. And this, this comes uh, today because of the programs where they were, they were accused of things and they never had a chance to make a defense. And so, so if, if you're ever attacked by Jews, you can say, doesn't your own law require that I be granted a chance to make a defense? 
and immediately you'll hear them retract. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Because this is so ingrained within them. Nicodemus is calling upon the same sense of fairness. At least allow the man to give a defense. But the reply to him is, the reply to him is, is that in verse 52, they answered, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And this is one of the Pharisees or the Sadducees speaking. Remember, the, the, the Sanhedrin was two-thirds Sadducees, the priestly class, one-third Pharisees, the teaching class. And that actually is not right. They quoted something here, and the, the scriptures often, you read things in the scriptures that somebody said such and such. But that doesn't mean it was true. The Bible is just quoting what that person said. Here, one of the people on the Sanhedrin is saying, no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. Well, we know that there are three prophets that have risen out of Galilee. Hosea, Jonah, and Elisha. Actually, all arose out of Galilee. So, whoever is sitting on the Sanhedrin doesn't quite know the Old Testament as well as he should. Because there are three Old Testament prophets that arose out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home in verse 53. So really what we're going to focus on is, is, is this portion in, in John chapter 8. Reading from John chapter 8, this is the woman caught in adultery. So, so we'll read this and then, then, then we'll begin to talk about it. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, who is without sin among you? Let him be the first to throw a stone. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older and he, older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, and the woman, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up. Jesus said to her, "Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you?" She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Okay, so we have just come off, come off the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That's a seven-day feast. We talk about it. We talked about it in the Songs of Ascent that are used step by step as they go up. On the last day, great day of the feast, that's when Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus went up that night to the Mount of Olives, comes back down the next day. The Feast of Booths is, is over. He goes up into the temple. And in the outer court of the temple, people would gather in small groups and teaching would go on. And here Jesus is teaching that group. And as he's teaching, they bring to him a woman who was caught in adultery. This is going to be the first time that we have ever seen and will ever see, where they are holding Jesus and trying to catch him using the law of Moses. In every other case where they opposed Jesus and questioned him, it was concerning their own Mishnaic law. How come your disciples don't wash their hands? Everything was around that, and Jesus never obeyed the Mishnaic law. He, in fact, said 
that the teachings of men have made the word of God of no effect because you just crush these people with all your teachings. Remember around the Sabbath that there were more than 1,000 regulations around the Sabbath day. So they were so crushed with these things. But now they're going to test him with the law of Moses because now they, can, they feel that if he'll oppose the law of Moses, then they can discredit him as, as not being sent by God. So they bring to him a woman caught in adultery. So what, is it, what does the law of Moses say for a woman caught in adultery? Look in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 22, verse, verse uh, 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman... Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. That is what the law says. So now if you, if you turn in the same book in Deuteronomy, and you look in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 and 7, it talks about how people are to be killed. It says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. Okay, so that's the context of the law. They bring to him, he, it's, it's verse 2, it's early in the morning. He's teaching them in the temple. He's there, people are gathered around him. He sat down and he began to teach them. Remember we said, this is typical rabbinic teaching. When you go into a church... The pastor stands up and teaches. Not in a synagogue. You go to a synagogue today, the rabbi sits down and teaches. The same pattern that was used then is used now uh, among the Jews. The teacher sits down and begins to teach. And, and uh, verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So they take this woman, they drag her forward, put her in the middle of this circle of people that he's teaching. And they say, she has been caught in adultery in the very act. In the act of adultery. It's not hearsay. She's been caught in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? And in fact, in the Greek here, this what then do you say, it says this. Moses told us to stone such a woman. You, what do you say? You, what do you say? Just very emphatic. Now, what do you say about this? Moses said we should stone such a woman. So this woman is put in their midst, and they say, what are you going to say? Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. You, what do you say? Then it says, verse 6, They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. So this was very much a test. They weren't interested in this woman and in her adultery and in her sin and in purging the land of Israel. This was simply a setup. This was simply a setup, and they were interested in getting and accusing Jesus. And Jesus perceives this, and we know this because of what the law said. Remember we read in, in, in Deuteronomy, 
In Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, it says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. She was caught in the very act. Well, guess who they're missing here? Alright? So there, there's, there's two parties responsible. The guy isn't with, standing in the middle with her. In fact, he might even be one of the accusers. This was totally a setup. Totally set up to catch Jesus in this. Who knows? Maybe he seduced her in order to do this. So, totally a setup. Jesus perceived it was a setup because they're only bringing to him the woman and not the man. It's a total fabrication of a setup. Now, she may well have been caught in adultery, but where's the man? Jesus is perceiving this, so he doesn't even answer them. It says in, in, in verse 6, But Jesus stooped down with his finger, and he wrote on the ground. Now, many people have, have, uh, have thought about what he was writing on the ground. And, you know, I've heard it said that maybe he was writing the names of women that these men who were accusing him had also slept with. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know what's written in the sand. If you go there to Israel today, you're not going to find it. Alright? So we don't know. But what we do know is it says that the author here, John, does not feel that that is important to the story or else we would know. But what he does feel is important to the story is that with his finger, he was writing. The scriptures tell us that the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments to Moses, ten of them, were written not by Moses, but by God. God wrote the Ten Commandments, it says, with His finger He inscribed this, with His finger He wrote this into stone. Twice He did this, because the first time He wrote this, Moses was so upset when He came down and He saw the children of Israel worshipping a golden calf, He threw these on the ground and they broke, and then when He went back up on the mountain, God gave Him a new set, written by the finger of God. Four times in the Old Testament it tells us, that the, new, the Ten Commandments were written by the very finger of God. Now we have the finger of God writing again. And in fact, the Greek emphasizes things by putting what it wants to emphasize first in the sentence. That's how the Greek writers emphasize things. And it says, with his finger, finger with, his, with his finger he wrote in the sand. It's not he wrote in the sand with his finger. The emphasis is on his finger he is writing in the sand. It says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So he's not saying anything. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and with the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. So, let me read this verse again from, from Deuteronomy 17. It says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You need at least two witnesses, minimum two witnesses, to put someone to death. Better to have three witnesses. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, it says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. In other words, the accusers, 
the accusers must be the ones to throw the first stone. It cannot be anyone else. If the accuser refuses to throw the first stone, you can't put the person to death. That is the legal system. So Jesus said, okay. In verse 7 of John chapter 8, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this is often taken out of context, meaning that no judgment can ever come because we're all sinners. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the scriptures talk about how we have to have discernment. We have to have judgment that comes through the church based on the Word of God. The person cannot have had that sin. In other words, you can't throw a stone at a person when you yourself were guilty of the same thing. Jesus said, okay. Let the one who is the witness, let the two who are witnesses pick up the stone and start throwing it. But now you know you can't be guilty of the same sin. Uh Uh-oh. No one ready to throw a stone at her. And it says they start going out, the older ones first. It's interesting that John seems to think that's important to bring out. The older guys left first. Maybe they had committed adultery more often because they were just older. And then the younger ones left. And Jesus, straightening up, he says, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? In other words, if no one there was, if the witness, he who is saying they saw her in this act, if they are not willing to throw the first stone, Jesus can't throw a stone either. Trial's over, it's done. Mistrial here. I mean, if the only way by the law of Moses that this can be executed is if the witness, the witnesses, it has to be at least two, start throwing the first stones. When they leave, Jesus can't throw the first stone. He was not a witness to this. You see how he took the very thing and he just turned it right back on them. He never denied the law of Moses. He never denied that this is exactly what was prescribed to be done. This was the law. This is exactly what should have been done. But when the witnesses are not there to throw the first stone, you can't throw any stones. It's over. And so Jesus straightens up, it says, and he says, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go From now on, sin no more. So he never condones her sin, and he tells her, don't do it again. But as far as the legal system is concerned, we've done what we're supposed to do according to the law of Moses. The witnesses, those who say that they were witness against you, would not throw the first stone. So no stone was thrown. And he says, I don't condemn you either. I can't throw a stone. He says, but sin no more. That is, what we covered here is the total legal aspect of what took place here. And how Jesus took this and just turned it right back on them. Just turned it right back on them. He said, do you want to follow the law of Moses? Here it is. Never again would they test him with the law of Moses. They go back now and they start testing him again with the Mishnaic law. Never with the law of Moses. But let's think now about the application of this. If we think about life itself, I mean, who of us, who of us could not at some point be cast into the middle of a group 
where the group could accuse us of something that we've done. You just see this life of Jesus. Remember, the amazing thing is not that Jesus went to sinners. The amazing thing is that sinners went to Jesus. Generally, sinners don't want to go to religious people because they feel condemned. But in Jesus' case, sinners liked being with Jesus. In fact, Jesus, you won't find anywhere in the Scriptures where Jesus comes against sinners. Except when the sin is religiously based. In other words, those who thought they were being religious, then Jesus really came against them. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. But He never did that with the prostitutes. He never did that with thieves. He never did that with tax collectors. He did that with the religious. That those who somehow justified themselves based on religion, with the struggles that we have as being human beings, Jesus is not there to condemn us. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And the amazing thing about Jesus is this picture of Him giving us strength to overcome. When when a person shared the gospel with me, I was 18 years old. I didn't know the gospel. They started to share the gospel with me. And he had me read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, out of Romans chapter 3. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And I just didn't consider myself a sinner. I said, I, I'm not... I've not... Uh, you know, I've, I've not killed anybody. I've never robbed a bank. How can I be a sinner? Then he had me read a verse where Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart, out of Matthew. And I would just, boom, just felt so convicted. Because when I was 18 years old, I was very much addicted to pornography. And I thought nobody else knew this. And it was as if Jesus had come and spoken right into my heart. And I looked at him, I said, if that's the definition of sin, I'm a sinner. And this thing just wore on me for months as I was thinking about this. And a few months after this young man had shared with me, I was all alone in my room and I asked Jesus, I said, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Come into my life. And it was as if Jesus was standing in my room that day. And this burden of sin that I had carried lifted And never was I drawn back to pornography again. Never. Very few people have that type of deliverance. But Jesus used that sin of pornography to convict me of my sin. He liberated me of my sin on the day I got saved to show me His power. Many other struggles I had on that day that I worked over for many years, some of those struggles I still continue to have. But what I'm saying is Jesus is able to give us victory. Jesus gives victory over sin. He never condemns us. He says, I don't condemn you. He says, I have not come to condemn the world. Jesus even said it. I have not come to condemn the world. Jesus could well have said, okay, and just started picking up stones and throwing it, but he dealt with the legal thing. You want to take on Jesus legally? He'll figure something out. Very clever. But then the whole spirit of it, He says, woman, I don't condemn you. They took this woman, which was a total setup, got her caught in adultery as a total setup. They don't bring the man. 
Because he may have well even been among the accusers. If he wasn't among the accusers, he was, it was a total fabrication, a setup. If they were really concerned about the law, they would have brought the man as well. And then, this woman is standing, she is surrounded by other people. I mean, her sin is not secret anymore. She is surrounded by the whole community. And remember, the community talks. And, you know, in this day and age, you know, if, if, a, if a person's caught in adultery, you oh, well, everybody does that. You know, it was really bad. It was really bad. They surrounded her, and everybody knew it. And Jesus, he says, I don't condemn you. He says, go. He says, go. But sin no more. Sin no more. You will find the love of Christ. If you have a struggle, you will find the love of Jesus. You will find the love of Jesus in that struggle. He is not condemning you. You might condemn yourself, but He doesn't condemn you. Jesus doesn't condemn us because of our struggles in humanity. He does not condemn us. He is loving. His grace is there. Sometimes He will deliver us just like He delivered me from pornography at the age of 18. Just boom, gone. Sometimes He takes us and we work through this because if we were delivered from everything... On the day of our salvation, can you imagine how judgmental we would be? But it's because of our struggles that we become a lot more compassionate. Do you know what's made me a much more compassionate professor with the struggles of students? It's my own children. When I see my own children struggle in something academically, it gives me so much more compassion with students. You used to think, what's your problem? It's right here in front of you. Can't you learn this right here? You see it? I just wrote it for you. Don't you understand? What is your problem? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, they're just saying that to get her away from me. But my own children, when I see them struggle, makes me far more compassionate with struggling students. It makes me far more compassionate when I see other people dealing with problems with their children. When I see my own children struggling with these things. When we live through something, it makes us far more compassionate. That's why God doesn't just deliver us from everything instantly. Because it makes us far more compassionate. You know, we don't have a faithful high priest who's never undergone temptation. We have a faithful high priest who's lived among us, who knows what it is to walk on this earth. That is our faithful high priest. Paul even speaks about, he talks about how sufferings, the sufferings you go through are for the sake of another, so that you can show compassion to another in their sufferings. God will take even our weaknesses, our struggles, and use it as a strength to others. You know, by the grace of God, I've been married to one woman for over 30 years. And I'm so thankful, and I love her so much. But did you know that for those who have been through a divorce, for those who have walked through that, and are successfully living a Christian life beyond divorce, did you know, do you realize how good they are at ministering to people who are going through the pain of a divorce, because they themselves have lived it. They have walked that walk. 
And God uses that as a way to show compassion to others. God takes the things that we go through, even the pains that we bring upon ourselves, even our own weakness, He takes that. He cleanses us. He washes us. And He takes us even when we're still struggling with things. And He uses us to minister to others. That is what you are called to do. This is not all about you and your struggle. That would be very convenient if everything were about me and every message were about me. But this is also about other people. You have been called to minister to other people. The weaknesses you have can be a strength in ministering to other people. Can really be a strength in ministering to other people. The things that you think are just just so gross that you've had to deal with in your life, you can show compassion to others in ways that other people never could have done because of what you've walked through, because of what you've been through. And you are called to do that. You are called to do that. Nobody forces you to do that, but you are called to do it. This is your calling in Christ. So lay down yourself for the sake of Christ. And sharing this with people, where you get together with them and you say, look, I have been through that. You know, when young couples come to Shreen and I sometimes and, you know, the guy will say, you know, my wife did this, you know, I said this and she did this and this and this. And then the wife says, wait, and he did this and this and this to me. I'm like, you guys are nothing. Let me tell you what Shreen and I have been through. Let me tell you about the stuff that I've done and the stuff that she's done. And she's there saying yes. And after they get hearing, they hear about some of the junk that's happened in our marriage and we've survived. And we've done very well and we've thrived together. They're like, wow, you've been through that? Yeah, and it's ten times worse than what you're talking about. And they go away so encouraged. They're happy. (laughs) They're happy to hear our struggles. They're happy to hear our pain. And I'm happy to be able to share it with them. Because they go away and they're like, wow, you've been through that? You know, one guy, one day a guy came to me and says, you know, my wife... She said that if this is what walking with Jesus is, I don't want to do it. I don't even want to walk with Jesus. He was thinking, this is it. I said, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's such a common thought. I mean, life's tough. People say that all the time. Yeah, they say that all the time. That's no problem. Just forget about it. She'll be fine by tomorrow. And she's fine by tomorrow. This happens in life. This happens in marriage. God allows this to happen so that we can have compassion upon another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the life of Jesus. Father, I thank you that Jesus does not condemn us, but he tells us to go and sin no more. He doesn't condone our sin but nor does He condemn us. Father, thank You so much for the life of Jesus displayed to this woman. Father, thank You that when our lives become a spectacle because of our sin, that You don't condemn us, but You take us down from being a spectacle and You say, go, sin no more. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your compassion. Thank You for Your mercies and I pray for these young people that you would take the hardships that they have been through and use that to draw them closer to Jesus 
and minister to other people. Father, that they would come out from themselves and use this to minister to other people. The grace of God be there upon them, I pray. Father, your grace be upon them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.